This is the Youth Worker Collective podcast from Young People's Ministries. You don't have to be in ministry alone with resources, coaching, games, and more at umcyoungpeople.com. Hello and uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Chris Wilterdink. I'm the director of Young People's Ministries at Discipleship Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee. And Jeremy Steele, who is out in Los Altos, California at Los Altos United Methodist Church and I host the weekly Youth Worker Recharge. And we're super excited today to have Mighty Rasing with us. And Mighty is the Director of Conference Relationships with Discipleship Ministries. Mighty and his wife, Tarina, and their adorable and growing family lives here in Nashville, Tennessee, after emigrating here from the Philippines. Uh, Mighty and I were together on the Young People's Ministries staff team when there was a larger staff team. Uh, In fact, I was the director of U.S. programs and Mighty was the director of Central Conference programs. So he and I have shared a lot of laughter and tears uh, based upon our experiences and the big events that we had to try to work together to pull off. Uh, So Mighty, welcome. Thanks, Chris. Uh, It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you, Mighty. We're so, so thankful that you've taken some time to be with us uh, this morning. You know, I whenever I get to talk to somebody uh, who has gotten to do the kind of global work that you have, um, you know, it, it makes me want to ask, what are the things that sort that seem to transcend culture? Like I, I live in America and in this like hyper, you know, uh, very wealthy area of America in Silicon Valley, where all these people are super driven to succeed and want to stress their kids out. Um, but I know that there's a lot of things in youth ministry that are very culturally based, right? It's, it, it's American youth ministry. But I wonder when you think of youth ministry and maybe just teens in general, like what have you seen that seems to transcend um, one cultural dynamic and, and seems to be like, yeah, you know, that's youth ministry everywhere. This, this piece is a similar piece all over the world. Yeah, I think uh, two things come to mind. Uh, one is that the presence of community mm-hmm. and that, uh, of course, it, it comes in many different forms, right? But right. in my experience growing up also in the church in the Philippines, having that community around me, having like, uh, we call them kuya and ate, which is, you know, big brother, big sister, mm-hmm. kind of, and having those to mentor you and show you the ropes, um, help you uh, grow in your faith and also in your leadership. I remember yes. one time there was a, there was uh, one of the kuyas or big brothers that we had in in youth ministry in the Philippines. You know, they, they were they were pushing us younger kids to you know stand up in front, lead a song. We call them Singspiration. If uh, you know, if you're thirty plus and older, you probably <laughs> remember those with "This Is the Day" songs and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, before the era of big bands on stage <laughs> or church, but but that having that kind of nurturing community. Yeah, in, mm-hmm. in many different ways. And secondly, one of the things that I've seen too with young people, uh, both the teenagers and what we call young adults in the Philippines, which are you know college age young people, is the willingness to serve. And sometimes even even if they are in dire need, they don't have a lot of money to you know help their families and all that. 
they, they're they're willing to go to to the local churches, help out with various ministries, to uh, devote their time. Um, I know several folks in Africa, in the Philippines, and also parts of Europe that have, you know, they decided to let careers wait mm. to serve in some formal capacity in youth ministry. And in addition to that, you know, they, they're not being paid. They're volunteers, right. but they find ways to sustain themselves and do the ministry. Mm. Um, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's just so, um, it feels, you know, it's, it's a blessing for the church and, and mm-hmm. for, for the families to have the commitment of, of youth and young adults and um, across cultures. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are um, are in the U.S. and um, and there's been, uh, you know, over the years, not always the best uh, relationship between the U.S. and the church in the U.S. and when they go abroad to try to do ministry. Um, so I'm curious, you know, having seen probably a lot of those relationships develop, both good and bad, um, you know, when people are kind of looking at trying to be global Christians and trying to uh, trying to not just stay connected with their little community, their little culture, um, what are the things that you say, you know, when you are when you're going to leave your culture, um, these are some things that you really need to watch out for because you may or may not know, but this kind of stuff can really damage the relationships that you're trying to build. Right. What are, what are some of the, what are some of the landmines, the the potholes that people don't know are out there, things that they need to think through questions they might need to ask when they're beginning to, to look at branching out into other cultures. Right. Uh, yeah, that's that's a good question, Jeremy. Thanks. And you know, when anytime that we encounter different cultures, sometimes we have assumptions and mm-hmm. we have like uh, preconceived notions about how they are. And you know, uh, one of the things that I would encourage people to to do is to read up on culture mm-hmm. of the place that you are going to visit. Um, sometimes when people think of Africa or say Philippines, they they have this big notion that, you know, for good or bad, people are poor. They don't have much. And that's true for, for many, in, in many places. But also, there are um, urban places. There are uh, people of different social economic backgrounds. So it's like avoiding that, you know, one story, avoiding that lumping people together in just one mm. category. Yeah. And um, interestingly, because of social media, because of the diffusion of media around the world, um, many young people are well abreast of American culture, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, yeah. series, movies, and, and TV and stuff like that. Um, so that's sometimes that's a connecting point. Um, but I think the, the main thing that I would say is to listen and try mm-hmm. to understand the context of people. Yeah. And another thing also that I can offer, and uh, Chris and I have had some experiences with this, be careful in offering to give stuff. Mm-hmm. 
whether that's money, whether that's uh, a, a, a gadget, whether that's, you know, because we, we need to try to avoid this, hey, we are coming here with blessings and air quotes, you know, mm-hmm. and we, we are here to give you stuff. And I think mm-hmm. that, that um, that's actually very easy. Come give Bibles, come give clothes, come give food. But what will happen to that community after, after the say the group is gone, yep. and the the goodies are gone? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can tell you a lot of stories where uh, there were foreign missionaries in the '90s, early 2000s, and this is not just Americans, by the way. So the, right. there's no monopoly of you know <laughs> good intention, um, but with unforeseen consequences. Right. Um, some some missionaries came, started the church, like in a village somewhere. They provided food for the people to attend. They provided clothes and they built the church building. And then after some time, they said, okay, it's time for you to take over now. And then when the locals took over, no more food, no more clothes, no more people to attend. Yeah. So so we need to to, I mean... Some mission trips are just very short, but if we can connect with the broader, what is God already doing there? Mm-hmm. What is the local church already doing there that we can support and be walk alongside with? I think I think um, that would be uh, a great in avoiding some of the unforeseen negative consequences of um, of just being there and giving stuff. You know? Yeah. 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 I think that. Um, Mighty, that observation is just so very good and so very relevant. Um, and it makes me think of the word sustainable, you know, and, and that's mm-hmm. not in like an eco kind of way, because I know that if we say sustainable automatically, a lot of people will think earth stuff, but sustainable relationships and sustainable systems and sustainable, mm-hmm. you know, long-term transformative stuff often is not just an overnight thing. It, it is so dependent upon those relationships and equipping and, and being in a, a you know, prepared for a long-term partnership with folks. Um, Mighty, I've, I've got one more question. I'm hoping this one's kind of fun. Um, uh, to preface it, this question is coming from the place uh, recognizing that Christianity did not start in America. Um, I know that that may be a newsflash for some people out there. <laughs> so, you know, caveat warning, but you know what? Jesus was not American. Um and so the, the version of American Christianity that we're experiencing in 2021, right, uh, has evolved over uh, the, the millennia, right, um, and was seeded in a different part of the world in a different culture. Um, and often, you know, because you did mention like missionaries and outreach and those kind of ministries, I, I think there's been a little bit of an unfortunate tendency to see that as a one-way street sometimes, right? Like where the American church is going to come in and we're going to offer this and do these things. Um, But, you know, really it's so much more of a a two-way street or a roundabout where there really should be some give and take and those kinds of things. So based upon not only your personal experiences, but the people that you've been in ministry with in uh, different parts of the continent of Africa, um, the continent of Europe, the continent of Asia, um, what are some things that the American church could learn and get better at because mm. of what Christianity does around the world that's different than it gets done in the United States? It's a tough question, Chris. Um, so as, as I'm thinking about that, uh, you know, what you said about it, about mission and ministry being two-way is uh, 
What, what comes to my mind right now is what GBGM uh, or General Board of Global Ministries, for, for those of you who are not familiar with the alphabet soup in the UMC, it's every from everywhere to everywhere. And, you know, it's like uh, we, we are in a global connection. And I think I've seen this play out better in the past decade that, you know, that it's not just, say, U.S. folks, U.S. United Methodists going to to places to do ministry. But I've seen folks, say, from Central Conferences come to U.S. and do ministry. Um, folks from Africa and from Europe come to uh, exchange places with each other and do ministry together. And just in terms of learning, I think part of it is uh, some of the criticisms, so whether uh, right or not, um, lobbed at the church in the U.S. is that many, it's very, it tends to be institutionalized and run like, uh, you know, corporate business with budgets and um, things like that. But folks in the central conferences sometimes don't have those structures, don't have those, um, don't have those uh, for lack of a better term, bureaucracies. <laughs> so um, it's, and, and some central conference folks, leaders, young people, and even older folks just um, come together and make the most out of what they have. And I've seen, um, I've seen communities help each other. Of course, that happens too in, in the U.S., right? But um I guess if we could just let go of some of the super highly institutionalized things that we do and, and provide more room for creativity, provide more room for um, informal gatherings in communities, um, I think that's, that's one thing that, that I would offer. And um, another thing, too, is that folks from central conferences tend to come from developing nations or underdeveloped, underdeveloped nations. And so many of them are in diaspora. You know, they are scattered all over the world. Like, for example, Filipinos, there's maybe 10 million or so scattered around the world. Zimbabwe folks, uh, there's a congregation in Canada and there are also, there are also many congregations in, in the UK. So it's almost like, wherever you go, you bring the church with you. And that's, that's something that I think is, is cool, you know, that wherever you go, whether in a different state in the U.S. or whether you go abroad, um, I, I think that's, that's something that churches from central conferences can offer. Bring the, the church with you wherever you go. Yeah, the, uh, the Zimbabwe one is a really interesting story because institutionally, right, there's an agreement between the United Methodist Church and the United Church of Canada that there won't be United Methodist churches planted by the denomination in Canada. Um, but people that moved there from Zimbabwe were like, no, we're, we're bringing our church with us. And so it's a church plant by people that moved to Canada from Zimbabwe. That is a United Methodist church, but it wasn't like officially started by the denomination. And so it's creative and it's passionate and it's not bound by those institutional rules. So yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that one up, Mighty. Oh, one other thing. Um, I think it's uh, the, I'm, I'm trying to grasp some words. Uh, worship with abandon. 
You know, it's like, oh, when, when you go to Africa, the kind of singing that they do, they don't have instruments, no, no, no fancy drums, no distorted guitars, no smoke machines. But man, when they sing, um, the young people, the choirs, wow, it's just so awesome. You, you don't like the way that we clap off beat and don't know how to move during worship? <laughs> what he's saying. <laughs> well, hey, man, uh, our church in the Philippines has been influenced so much by liturgy and worship from the U.S. Mm-hmm. because, you know, uh, because of the uh, missionary movement there. But so, so I am there with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would like to share just a passage and read... Um, from Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, this is 1 to 8, but I'll be skipping some lines here and there. Um, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Here it goes. For everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You know, what I like about this passage from Ecclesiastes is just this play on time, a time for this, a time for that. And it's a great reminder of the cycle of life, of seasons, fall and winter, spring and summer. Uh, in the Philippines where I grew up, there's no spring, there's no fall. Usually it's just hot. But <laughs> there's extra hot in the summer and the wet, rainy hot towards the end of the year. Um, in, in our passage, it just, you know, it, it, it speaks about the time to, to tear down and a time to build. And in our time, in our society, in our church, sometimes uh, there also seems to be you know, a lot of time to hate, a lot of time to tear down, to tear down, um, speak loudly on social media. And sometimes it also feels like a time for war, even if, you know, it's just words, right? And sometimes it does feel like it's so easy to tear something down, to destroy something. Um, you know, we can destroy things accidentally, right? I remember one time when our eldest son is younger, we were in an apartment with a, a lower ceiling and he he looked at the umbrella i brought one one time and he opened it up it hit the ceiling ceiling and one of the spokes broke right it's i mean he's curious it's fascinating to open things up when you're a little boy but you know you don't know it but you may open something and it might get broken right and some of the things that we destroy you know we can do it by neglect um sometimes you know we have a small garden and if you we stop watering them especially during the summer they dry up and they will die and sometimes now i'm going to be speaking a little bit organizationally here sometimes you know some things get destroyed by lack of funding lack of budgets and this is this happens in governments and in bureaucracies and one sure way to destroy a project is to stop funding it. And well, Chris and I, we've seen some grant programs here and there, but some of the things that have happened is that when there was funding um, from a grant program, the project continues. But when it dries up and there is no alternative source of funds, then the project dies. There's just no budget. 
And some things we also destroy or tear down by a fixing gone bad. You know, back in the Philippines, uh, you know, ironing our clothes used to be a thing. <laughs> and one time our flat iron was, was malfunctioning because of a wire that was loose or something. I tried fixing it, but all I did was worsen the situation and it finally stopped working. So by that time, I discovered that I'm not the handyman I thought I was. So at least not without a YouTube video tutorial. You know? um, that doesn't mean that fixing is wrong. It's just that when you fix something, there's also that risk that when you tinker with, say, a flat iron or a problem or a program or a project, or sometimes even the life of a teenager when we feel like we can fix, right? There's a risk that we may make things worse. And sometimes too, uh, things get destroyed by conflict and bitter fighting. And there are folks who stand up and endure the fight. But there are also those who quietly go out the back door because they just don't want the conflict. Um, so why have I been thinking about destruction? Um, and this is partly because I've heard about a, you know, fantasy series. I'm a big fantasy literature fan. Um, the Amazon series set before the events of the Lord of the Rings. I think they've, um, they've wrapped up the, the, the filming, I think. And also the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. You know, it's a series soon. And last year, I think last year it was. Um, I can't remember exactly now. I borrowed the DVD of the movie Tremors from the library. So I don't know those of you who grew up in the 90s or in the early 2000s, you know, the characters in the movie had to fight these subterranean worms with guns, explosives, and some other cunning methods. I started thinking about the plot, plot lines of many movies, you know, like Jaws, Predator, Armageddon, Army of the Dead. So that's a recent one. Um, and most of the time, you know what the solution is? Go out on an all-out war against the big monster and make something explode, right? And in fantasy literature, there tends to be, you know, all, almost always a dark lord that should be killed and defeated. It's fancy and medieval-ish. And the solution is to tear something down, blow it up. And stories focus on the confrontation between the hero and the villain, darkness versus light a dilemma, a duel that only one side will survive, right? That's the, that's the plot line of many stories. But in, in, in the course of that story, they show, you know, they, there's a journey, the recruitment of the hero, building up the army, recruiting allies, big cinematic battles, and then the Dark Lord is defeated. Well, what they don't show, though, is that the difficult task of rebuilding after the Dark Lord is gone. And, you know, happily ever after is not really guaranteed when the Dark Lord is gone. Sometimes the Dark Lord is replaced by the hero who becomes another Dark Lord. So there's this video game in the early 2000s called Diablo 2 or 1. I can't remember exactly. And that's the plot. You defeat the Dark Lord only for you to become the Dark Lord in its place. And, you know, sometimes when the Dark Lord is gone, the society or the world devolves to chaos, right? Um, that's the plot of another book in a series by Brandon Sanderson called Mistborn. Sorry, I, I keep dropping fantasy books. <laughs> I'm not sure if a lot of the youth workers have read these or not. But all I'm saying is it's far easier to destroy and go to war 
than it is to build something, to plant something. And in many places, and in the church too, some conflict may end up destroying some relationships and ministries. And sometimes our youth, our young people are, for lack of a better term, collateral damage sometimes. And in the conflicts that we find ourselves in, sometimes we don't want to be in those conflicts, right? I hope we do not paint the other as the dark lord in our journey. It is more difficult to plant and build. How many years and decades did it take to rebuild Germany and Japan after World War II, right? It took a lot of money and a lot of time for them to be to rebuild to where they eventually ended up. And how many years did it also take for the Methodist Church to heal and reunite after the divisions in the 19th century? So planting, building, starting something new is difficult. There are few guarantees, if at all. So um, let me read another passage from this time from the book of Matthew. It says, uh, this is the parable of the sower. And listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on a shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the, the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun. And since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked up the tender plants. Still, other seeds fell on fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So in this parable of the sower, Jesus talked about the farmer, right? Um, scattering seeds. And so only one out of four became a success. Only one out of four. So some seeds fell on footpath, some on shallow soil, and some on thorns. The, of course, the only one that was successful was the one with the fertile soil. And we see similar statistics in the business and church planting world. You know, 20% of small businesses fail in their first year. 30% of small businesses fail in their second year. And 50% of small businesses fail after five years in business. And finally, 30% of small business owners fail in their 10th year in business. That's a little bit, uh, you know, a lot of risks, right? But when... Um, especially Jeremy is in the Silicon Valley area and so many startups are now in the dustbins of history, right? And, but even church plants, there are no guarantees. Like back in 2018, I listened to a startup podcast from Gimlet Media. This season was all about a church plant in Philadelphia. It, it's a fascinating look. Um, of course, the, the podcast produce, producer itself uh, is a secular organization. But it was a, I think it was a good dive into how um, a church plant struggles to become sustainable. But should failure scare us? And here's the thing. God calls us to plant the seeds of faith no matter where we are. We don't know whether this, the, the, the soil that we are putting is fertile or is it, it's a footpath or it's a thorny kind of soil. But God's calling for us is to plant those seeds you know 
um, even in this time where so many things are being torn down, there's conflict here and there, right side, left side, and then some conversations just become difficult when five years ago they were just normal, right? But the, the process of tearing down is difficult. The, and, and sometimes we accidentally make mistakes. But um, I also take hope from the same depressing book in the Bible. I'm going to read another, another passage from Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to end with this. This one is from Ecclesiastes 11. Send your grain across the seas, and in time, profits will flow back to you. But divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. When clouds are heavy, the rains come down. Whether a tree falls north or south, it stays where it falls. Now take note of this. This is verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 11. Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. So folks, especially us in, in, the, in the youth ministry work, God calls us to sow, and sow we must in season or out of season, to quote St. Paul, right? So we don't watch for perfect weather. We remain faithful for God's calling to us and plant those seeds in the hearts of, of the people that God entrusted to us. So, and this is a question that I'm going to ask you now and I hope to reflect on this. What, it is, what is it that God has called you to plant? And I hope and pray that you will remain faithful in that calling. Mighty, thank you so much. Um, uh, there was just several really great and meaningful pieces of that devotion that I know Jeremy and I are going to ask you about. Um, the The closing for me particularly had to do with some of the language that was related to the uh, protocol of separation through reconciliation and grace or whatever the very long title of that was. But um, one one of the quotes from the mediator that was a part of that who is not part of the United Methodist Church and, and is not part of the Christian faith either, um, is that the perfect is the enemy of the good. Um, and I, I'm so glad to hear your your words and your affirmation for people that just, it, 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 so much of it is just going in and, and go ahead and start um, because things will never be perfect. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, a huge part. I, I was really struck by um, when you talked about Teenagers sometimes being collateral damage um, and young adults. I think you can loop that in. I, I've seen that happen so many times. Um, kids that I sort of poured into um, some decision is made somewhere in some boardroom or, you know, conference hall and those people don't know the kid that I've been mentoring, uh, but they hurt the kid that I've been mentoring. And I've watched a bunch of people sort of leave the church because of that. Um, and, and, and not just this sort of protocol or, or the, any of the LGBTQ issues though that for sure has, has had that effect. Um, but even in a local church setting, right. Um, so what do you do in that case? Like, how do you, how do you respond sort of recognizing yourself as an agent of that system, you know, as a, somebody who's been granted some level of power and authority by that system, 
Um, how do you respond to that teenager or young adult who has been collateral damage um, in, in something like that? That's a difficult question, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think it, it would be good for, you know, other youth workers to chime in as well, because, and, and the only thing that I could think about to respond is to keep working on that relationship, right? Because sometimes um, through no direct action of yours, they got hurt and they left the church and that's where their journey is taking them next. And sometimes um, part of it is the difficult process of accepting that, letting them grieve, but also, you know, giving the commitment that you are also there to listen if they need to at least. Um, you know, I think my, my, my own background is also not like the youth ministry here in the U.S., but I've also seen that people who are hurt leave the church, but still having that connection even after many years is at the very least a way to process what happened. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, one time in my visit, in one of my work trips in Europe, I reconnected with a with a friend in in youth ministry in the Philippines from like a decade or two ago, and she told me the story of how a pastor abused her, mm. and that of course that had a very profound impact on on her, and I think just being there, being able to listen, being in relationship, and then the next step to that would be to go back to our structures of power and say, we need to look at this. Mm. So that's the next step to it. So, you know, you, right. you have the relationship with the teenager, the youth that was hurt and now is on a different journey because of that. And then having that relationship, processing that, and then going back to our structures and say, hey, this is what happened. Yeah. Whether we wanted to or not, whether intentional or not, this is how it was perceived and how, how can we avoid that in the future? You know, sometimes we talk about systems and processes and things like that. And, and I think if we're not careful, the human element, the relationship element can be taken out of that. And we always, especially in ministry, we always need to put that back in there. Um, so, so I hope that's, that's helpful. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I, I know that for me, there was a moment at which I had to, I had to sort of uh, come to terms with the fact that some of these kids were not ever going to come back. Right. Like they were hurt so deeply that with, you know, without a miracle of God, they were not going to come back inside the walls of a church, but that I still had access to them. Right. They still had a relationship with me. And the shift that I had to make is the shift that um, God's work in this student's life doesn't have to happen through a church. Um, God, God, you know, our, our Wesleyan understanding of the way transformation happens is uh, through relationship, right? And that if they still have a relationship with me, I can be an agent of God's grace in their life. Um, 
And the goal of my relationship is not to get them to learn how to sit in a pew again. Uh, but the goal of my relationship is to help them stay connected with God, which is bigger than the pews. Um, and uh, which is funny as a clergy person, right? Because clergy people always seem panicked about how many people are sitting in pews um, and how that's less and less. But I, I you know, the, the calling I think of a clergy person in the world is to try to be an agent of God's grace. And as a Wesleyan, that means the real, that, that, that happens in relationship. It doesn't necessarily happen in a sermon um, or uh, it, it, that is not the necessary uh, means by which that grace comes to people. And so for me, it was stopping to, trying to get them to come back to church. I had to stop trying to solve their church problem, their problem with the church, and just be a pastor to them and uh, do that at a coffee shop maybe instead of a, a pew. We have also experienced that here in Malawi as young people, as the youth. And when I was the youth president by then, I remember we had a conference, annual conference, uh, with Bishop Nyuatiwa presiding. Um, we were uh, commenting on something to do with the youth, in which some of our programs were uh, taken by the women organization to say that they are the one who are to control us. We didn't feel good about that. We thought like we are being damaged somewhere, that we are not given a chance to do our things accordingly. And uh, it, we were in the whole conference room, big people there, and me and my friend as young people talking in the presence of the bishop. And the bishop had to come in to say, no, you have to let these young people, the youth, uh, to make mistakes. If, you, if you're afraid of their mistakes, let them make mistakes and help them to fix them so that they can learn from that, from the process. Because if you just dominate everything that they do, they might be afraid and we are not caring for the next church to come. So in this situation, I agree with you, it takes a good leader to resonate and to accommodate uh, and accommodate these people, young people, that whatever they are doing, they will be supported no matter what. Because otherwise, uh, most of us young people, we are very emotional. Whenever we are blocked, we just feel like, okay, we are not allowed here, so we better step back. So I would agree with you that this is a very great topic. Thank you very much. And, and I'm learning a lot from you. Thank you. Yes, Francis, thank you for that observation. And I'm so grateful for a person with the position of power like a bishop to give voice to that need to allow young people that room to grow, right? I, I think that you're exactly right. Um, if there's not room to express uh, uh, express and have chances and learn, then it's exactly right. We're not caring for the church of the future because um, it, it won't know what it means to grow or to be challenged mm -hmm. and to grow through it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. And, and I like how your bishop um, talked about giving them room to, to make mistakes. Um, I, that's so important. I, I, in here, the, out in the, the Silicon Valley, there's sort of a, a mantra that, you know, if you haven't had a big failure in whatever you're doing, um, you haven't taken a big enough risk. Um, uh, playing it safe is fine, but uh, but playing it safe doesn't give you the kind of rewards, the, the big rewards, right? You have to take risks. You have to fail. And 
you try to learn from your failures. And, and that's so, I mean, that, that is so important, Francis, that, and it's so unusual to have um, leaders that have that kind of courage to let young people try and fail. 